Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than a hundred interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, veterinarians, artists, and more who helped shape and found the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson, and today we revisit a conversation I had in 2008 with one of the cornerstones of the marine mammal field. Ken Belcom is an American scientist who is probably best known for his work with killer whales. Ken's career spanned more than 50 years and followed not necessarily a circuitous path, but a diverse one. He realized early on in life that he wanted to work with animals. So he did what he thought he needed to do, volunteered as a dishwasher on a whale catcher boat that translated into being hired by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service the following year. Later, he spent time in the Navy as an aviator, working with sonar submarine detection system, trying to separate anthropogenic sound from biological sound. Early in 1976, Ken began studies of whales on both coasts of North America. In the Pacific Northwest, Ken worked with the U.S. government to provide a detailed photo identification census of the killer whale population in Washington state waters. And on the East Coast, Ken became the research director for the Ocean Research and Education Society based in Gloucester, Massachusetts, with the emphasis on emerging methodologies of photo identification of humpback whales. Research was conducted aboard the Regina Maris, a 144-foot barkentine sailing ship owned by his friend and colleague, Dr. George Nicholas. In the spring of 1976, Ken founded the Killer Whale Photo Identification Study, Orca Survey, the purpose of this study was to assess the existing killer whale population living in Washington state waters to determine if their numbers could sustain further captures. Ken's initial research census showed that the southern resident killer whale population could not sustain further captures and removals. I first met Ken in 1994 during the production of the Hollywood film Free Willy, and then again in 2008 at his home in the San Juan Islands for a sit-down interview. I remember thinking that he was one of the most down-to-earth, humble people I had ever met. I enjoyed our brief times together and was saddened to hear of his passing just before Christmas in 2022. Ken's achievements are too numerous and his scientific endeavors too diverse for me to fully discuss in this short podcast. I certainly could not do them all justice. So instead, let's listen to what he told me in his own words. As a very s small youngster, you know, in uh, grammar school or in before even, I always liked animals. And uh, I sort of, uh, I don't know why, but I thought that uh, school was a way to uh, round yourself out, you know, learn things that you don't know about or that aren't fascinating, get fascinated in a lot of things. So I took a great variety of courses and at one point I wanted to be uh, a veterinarian 
uh, at another point. That's probably when I was about 12. And then when I was early teens, uh, uh, I wanted to be a lawyer so that I could make lots of money and then do whatever I want. And also I thought that would please my dad, who was a lawyer, and I wasn't raised by him, and I thought that would be kind of neat. Uh, but I took a fish and wildlife management course at the University of California from uh, Paul Needham and uh, A. Starker Leopold. And I just immediately went 180 on my career path and went into wildlife. I knew I wanted to do something out in the field with wildlife. I graduated in zoology from the University of California at Davis, and I came out with a fascination for studying some animal group, um, kind of like you know when people were just going into chimps and lions and gorillas in long-term studies. I thought that uh, that was the way to go, and so I was looking first at uh, mountain beaver, Heplodontia. There were a couple of little populations I thought would be worth looking at. Uh, and, you know, relatively new ground kind of stuff. And uh, I actually became, I had a professor in zoology that was Dr. Milton Hildebrand, functional anatomy guy, and just really inspired me to wonder how things work. And uh, so I thought of... Uh, as an option to look at diving mammals and how their respiration systems work. And uh, I went to the whaling stations in Berkeley, California and started collecting lung tissues and looking at the anatomy. And Dale Rice, who was the government biologist at the time, uh, saw that I didn't mind crawling around piles of meat and guts and looking for stuff. so. He hired me to be his technician, and uh, it's been all downhill from there. Just I can't do anything else now. <laughs> After graduating from college and realizing that he had an interest in diving mammals, Ken ended up in the Navy for a while. This stint in the Navy proved to be formative. It gave him an acoustic background and helped to guide his professional trajectory. I started out as a pilot because I thought, well, if I can fly over the water and cover a lot of area, I can see a lot of whales. And uh, that was cool, but uh, the actual mission that I was involved with, I, I didn't understand at the time. AWACS, the radar defense of, uh, uh, anyway, I'm not a military guy, you know, I just didn't, I didn't like that as much as where they ultimately put me was operations officer in charge of a sound surveillance system, listening to underwater sounds. So uh, I actually got pretty good at it because uh, uh, whales are quieter in general than submarines. So submarines were just the clutter for me to find the whale sounds, whereas the uh, mission obviously was the other way around. They were trying to get out of the clutter of marine animal sounds into the mechanical sounds of enemy contacts. Uh, anyway, I just immersed in it and loved it uh, and then got out and couldn't tell anybody about it. Here it's 30 years later and uh, I, I wouldn't want to have to go to federal prison for 
revealing secrets that we knew then. But it's a fabulous world underwater. Another skill that Ken developed along the way was photography. In the mid-1970s, he began using photo ID for a government project to help take a census of killer whales in Puget Sound. Again, when I was uh, just graduating from college, I, as a uh, hobby, I dabbled in photography. I, I was just so impressed with photography at the time, the early 60s. Uh, Life magazine pictures of whales jumping in the air off Bermuda and stuff, and I thought, well, if I'm going into this, I want to have a camera. So I learned a little bit about photography and uh, uh, just kept it up over the years, uh, at least learned some of the techniques. I was never a real artist. I just was lucky a couple times. But uh, when I got out of the Navy, the first job opportunity offered to me by Dale Rice, my ex-employer, was a contract to study the killer whales in Puget Sound, tell the government how many were here. And we could do any method we wanted, uh, but I knew of this crazy man called Mike Big that could tell whales apart and uh, had a lot of pictures and thought he knew them all. Uh, so we included photo identification in our approach and uh, it wasn't very long before I would just completely won over. I could call Mike on the phone and describe a whale to him and he'd tell me who it was. <laughs> it was like the guy really does know them all and uh, I just followed his footsteps since then. And of course, things have changed. We're now in digital age and digital photography and computers. And you have to learn all that stuff on the way. But it's basically uh, individual recognition, which uh, you know some people knew since way before Moby Dick. But uh, a lot of people are doing it now. Well, we, uh, when we began the study for Dale, uh, for the federal government, it was to tell them how many whales were here as of 1976. There had been an era of captures, removals. About 50 had been taken out either by live removal or death in the capture efforts. Um, and Marine Mammal Protection Act required that uh, the status of the population be known in order to even issue any more permits for removal. So we went out and counted them up. And we agreed with Mike Big. And we uh, essentially became uh, sort of the outlaws right away because now they had two crazy scientists that could tell whales apart and they had numbers that some people just didn't want to believe. We had about 70 whales left after the removals. Then they increased gradually as protection afforded them time to reproduce and then they declined a little bit and then they increased again. They got almost up to 100 and then they dropped drastically in the mid-90s and they're sort of wavering in the 80-some level now. And uh, we're trying to find out why. There's a limit to their population size, unlike people. We, we're gonna fill the planet, but you can't fill it with killer whales, you gotta feed them. 
Tracking the number of killer whales in Puget Sound led Ken to discover that the whale's distribution was not what it seemed. As the study continued, it became apparent that the whale's food situation was changing. Human interaction was once again having an adverse effect on the ecosystem. The L-pod whales began showing up in Monterey about seven years ago that we're aware of in the winter, and some of the K-pod whales as well. And uh, I don't know if it happened before in the past, but in the 70s, it seemed like uh, between Mike and myself and the episodic uh, for, you know, capture of a photograph from somebody, we could account for them in most months of the year, somewhere in the Northwest. But uh, as I say, about seven years ago, Nancy Black at Monterey started sending us photographs of whales that were obviously our southern resident L-pod, K-pod members. And every winter they've been going there. Uh, so I got a little bit involved in trying to find out the fish situation and uh, I mean, the whale situation is one thing, but the fish politics are just unbelievable because <laughs> it's millions and millions of dollars, maybe tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of fish resource. Um, and it's contested quite a bit. And there's a lot of uh, uh, trouble finding what is a good data set for the status of various stocks. Anyway. California salmon for a while were doing pretty good. This year they're doing bad. And what's happening is our whale population is tracking the fish populations with a lag of about two years. If we have a bad year in fish, we can look ahead for a bad year for whales. In the early years, Mike and I thought that uh, we had a pretty good handle on their distribution. We knew their numbers real well. And we had midwinter, early spring encounters with K's and L's on, on occasion. But uh, there's no fish left here, really. I mean, there were standing stocks of Chinook in Puget Sound and Georgia Strait that were in the low millions, and uh, they're gone. So they got to go somewhere. No fish, no blackfish. The, the basic... Uh, truths of the First Nation people that were here, you know. They told us when they signed the treaties, <laughs> you know, no fish, no blackfish. I've sort of come to the conclusion that the, you know, there's, there's science and then there's uh, society, you know, the whole rest of the way everything works, you know. We, uh, people are really anthropocentric, you know, we think of our I mean, it's our jobs and our lifestyles and our house payments and our children and our ancestors, descendants, you know, I mean, that's the focus of most people's existence. I mean, this other stuff is pretty, but it's just filler, you know, it's, and most people don't get to enjoy this part of it. They see a city part of it or the, anyway, this is the part that sustains us all and knowing about it and trying to relate it to the rest of our species to uh, give us all a leg up on survival for you know a real long term not just until we retire 
it'd be nice if Homo sapiens lasted as long as uh, Orsinosaurca, you know. We got another 20 million years to go before we last that long. Ongoing population studies conducted by the Center for Whale Research under Ken's direction documented the steep decline in southern resident killer whale numbers from 1995 to 2001. Based on these studies and a wide consensus from the scientific community, decreased Chinook salmon populations, largely due to overfishing and other human activities, led to the malnutrition in the whales and a decline in their population. This event ultimately led to the listing of these killer whales as endangered under the Endangered Species Act in 2005. Ken's advocacy for salmon protection and restoration led to the removal of four lower Snake River dams, along with a wide range of salmon restoration efforts, possibly providing the needed salmon for the struggling orcas. As of July 1, 2022, the southern resident killer whale population stands at 73 whales. That's all we have time for today, and I thank you for listening. If you would like to watch Ken's complete interview or other scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.